The much-needed Medicaid expansion passed by the voters needs to be implemented in a fiscally sustainable way. And with some common sense adjustments, I believe that we can implement this program without delay. I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check, and that was Utah Governor Gary Herbert weighing in on his state's Medicaid moves. Controversial policy that we'll be discussing later in this show. We'll actually be focusing on three topics today. First, we'll drill into Medicaid changes in Utah and beyond. Second, we'll take a look at insurance companies and their lawsuits against the Trump administration. And finally, a look ahead to next week's congressional hearings. We'll be joined by a guest, Rodney Whitlock, who used to be a top aide to Senator Chuck Grassley, who's drilling into drug prices. But before we do any of that, I want to welcome two colleagues who are joining for the News Roundup. First, Paul Demko, our insurance reporter. Hello, Paul. Hey, Dan. And Rachna Pradhan, who covers healthcare from across the states. Hey, Dan. Listeners should know that we were talking about a leaked interview by Tucker Carlson, the Fox News host, where he's cursing at a guest, and Paul and Rachna have separately expressed admiration for his style. So I'm taking that as an invitation to just mock both of you. I'm ready. Throughout this roundup. (laughs) Thanks for having us, you moron. (laughs) You're already getting into the spirit. I respect that. (laughs) On November 6th, Utah voters approved a ballot measure to expand Medicaid. On February 11th, Utah's Republican governor, working with Republicans in the statehouse, signed a bill that would effectively restrict that expansion and include new measures like work requirements. Rachna, how did we get from what voters passed in a ballot measure three months ago to what Republicans just signed into law in Utah? Basically, the Proposition 3 in Utah would have expanded Medicaid benefits to 150,000 people. Not all of those people are uninsured currently, but... A, a big chunk of them are. And that's what voters passed. That's yes. what voters want. Proposition 3 was what voters wanted. Uh, 53% of voters uh, endorsed uh, adopting the coverage expansion as it is envisioned under uh, the health care law. For context, the ballot measure included um, a sales tax increase to cover the state's costs for, for doing this, for providing benefits to more people. And then the governor's office, uh, his budget office, came back and ran some numbers and said, as it turns out, this uh, sales tax uh, hike is not going to be enough to cover our costs. So Republicans then uh, were starting to craft another bill to essentially pare back their coverage expansion to the poverty line. And they they have reasons for doing that that we can get into. Um, And then they want to add all of these kind of Uh, conservative bells and whistles that have been talked about in a lot of other states. You reference work requirements. That's one. Uh, Utah has wanted to, for a while, cap enrollment if if they run out of money to cover the population. That's never been approved. Um, And and so that's how we got to this point, um, essentially because they said, we can't afford a full-on expansion, so we're going to do something that leaves it so that no one is uninsured, but it's still not... 150,000 people getting Medicaid coverage, which is what the voters wanted. How many people are projected to gain coverage under this modified Republican plan? It's roughly about 90,000. So, um, and then people, uh, those those people are below the poverty line. And now people above the poverty line, as you know, our listeners, I think, know, can go to Utah's in, you know, exchange under the ACA and they can get really heavily subsidized private coverage. 
Um, and that's what Utah Republicans have said in pushing this bill. They said, look, we're not leaving people uninsured. We are making sure that people have something. And for the people who really don't have anything, we are giving them Medicaid benefits. Uh, the issue really that this boils down to in the end and what is so significant for the Trump administration is the money. It's all about the money at this point. And that money being the Trump administration is going to have to do something they've never done in terms of how they will chip in money to fund this new Utah plan. Do we know if they will do that? No, we don't. Um, Utah, in typical, I like to joke that, you know, you have conservative states, you have liberal states, but all states are aligned in their interests to get as much federal money as possible whenever they can from the federal government, even if they criticize the federal government all the time. So Utah is asking the Trump administration, you know, the administration to send them the money that is available to states in the ACA for expanding coverage fully, and they want it for covering a smaller group of people. Now, um, they essentially they want to do they want the same financial package that is promised to states that say yes to the full expansion, but they want it even though they're doing a partial expansion. Exactly. And this has been a major argument in the Trump administration for years. Right. So, and you know, before even during the Obama administration, there were lots of. Republican state officials, including our current CMS administrator, who was pushing to have this option, and they said no. And so far, the Trump administration also has not said yes. Utah's saying they will, but, you know, the proof isn't there until they do it. The reason the Obama folks said no to this idea, this partial expansion, was that they were worried that some states would try and negotiate these sweeter deals to expand coverage, but not all the way. And interestingly, it's kind of a flip reason for why the Trump administration has said no. They have not wanted to see states expand Medicaid at all. It's it's a really uh, interesting political quandary, I think, that people in Washington find themselves in. There's, you know, there is a really strong desire, I think, among uh, some really key players in the administration to give Utah what it wants. They want the state to have flexibility to do. They want to give them this because they asked for it. When but you then, say key players, do you mean Seema Verma, head of CMS? Right. Yes. So the CMS, generally speaking, um, and this is true of our of uh, Administrator Verma, um, state flexibility is a big, you know, credo that they live by. They want to try to give states things when they ask for them, but. Except when it's California trying to do uh, Medicare coverage for all. Seema Verma did snap at the governor of California on Twitter about that. Right. So maybe red states, they're a little more willing. Um, But, you know, they want to do that for states, I would say, by and large. And, um, you know, but this this creates a really uh, interesting precedent if they do it. And it might encourage more states to expand Medicaid. And a lot of people in the White House are not okay with that. Well, let's go there. Utah was not the only state to adopt Medicaid expansion last year at the ballot box. You also had two other conservative states, uh, Nebraska and Idaho, that that similarly passed referendums. What implications potentially does this debate have for those two states? Well, so those two states currently, I don't think, are nearly as serious about altering their ballot measures in the way that the Utah effort was very serious. But that being said... I think automatically for a state, there's a lot of incentive to be able to cap Medicaid benefits at the poverty line, um, as opposed to going up to 138% as the law says. Really, it's about money, again, because if you cap, even under the ACA, right, 
the federal government will pay for 90% of the costs at least, but that 10% is still a lot of money for a state. So it, the more people that you can get on the federal taxpayer dime as opposed to on your own budget, they are going to want that. Um, and so you could see situations, I think, where they would maybe think about limiting it to the poverty line. Because again, then you're not opening yourselves up to criticism that you're throwing people off of health insurance because they have something. Um, there are other states, I should say, you know, Arkansas and Massachusetts are the other ones that have asked the Trump administration to do these partial expansions. They already did full Medicaid expansions in their states and they want to put it, you know, roll it back. So what about you mentioned that 138% of the poverty line is in statute. To me, that means you're going to be inviting a lawsuit if you do something other than that. Do we have any indication of whether Utah will be sued if they go through with this plan and get approval from the Trump administration? I'm sure just by including work requirements alone and enrollment caps, I am sure they will be sued. Um, now, is it illegal to do an expansion up to the poverty line and get the enhanced match? There are some pretty prominent legal experts who say, no, it's not illegal. It's just the interpretation that the Obama administration took. Now, so I, I don't, you know, I'm not a lawyer, um, for which I'm mostly grateful. So I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know what the arguments would be. But I do think, you know, there are lots of components about the Utah plan that are going to invite litigation regardless. Beyond litigation, I'm just curious about voter will and voter anger. This ballot measure passed a few months ago with more than 53% of Utah voters saying we want this full expansion. They're not getting that. Republicans in the state house went a different way. And a striking moment for me was watching the head of the Utah Health Policy Project, which had been fighting the Republican plan. Eventually, the, the head of that organization went and stood with the governor as he signed this modified Medicaid bill into law. And, and the head of that group, Matt Sonecker, he, he said, uh, essentially, this is still a victory because tens of thousands of Utahns who wouldn't have coverage now have it. Is, is that reflective of the mood on the ground, Rachna? Could this be something where most Utahns are going to say, well, we got something, it's okay? Or is there going to be enough frustration that we could see in the 2020 election, which could determine control of the Utah Statehouse, some anger, much like we saw in the 2018 midterms, around healthcare moves? I mean, I, I don't think that this would invite the kind of backlash um, that would maybe sway voters to that degree, only because two things. One is, um, again, Utah did provide coverage to thousands of people. It's not as if they're not doing anything or they just repeal the entire thing and now you have thousands of people without nothing. When it, it, Like, that would be a much starker difference, right, between what voters pass versus what ended up happening. Uh, the other thing, too, is if you think about it, the whole reason why the ballot effort came into being is because Utah legislators for years were doing essentially nothing to cover these people in the so-called coverage gap. Now, by passing something that does a full expansion, it forced their hand to make it so that there is no gap in their state. If I'm the Utah Health Policy Project or someone who supports coverage expansion, how could you not see that as at least something that's positive in the end? Because like I said, they, they you know, if they really wanted to be hardline about it, they could have just repealed the whole thing. Last question. You're going to interview Utah Governor Gary Herbert on Friday in Washington, D.C. for a Politico event. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to watch along from home. I, I know you can't tip your questions, 
But what do you feel like you need to know from Governor Herbert when you're asking him about these Medicaid ideas? Who in Washington has made this promise that they're going to get what they want? Because I think that now Utah has had conversations with senior people, but was it encouragement? Was it a promise? Was it, you know, and and that there's a very big difference, right? I mean, you can encourage a state to submit an application and say, we'll work with you on it. That doesn't mean you'll get it. And the thing about these waiver negotiations is it's not just up to CMS, is it? I mean, it, it it's there's a lot of play or there are very many players that get involved in these sorts of things and a lot of different considerations. And so I want to know who's made this promise. Raj, thanks for walking us through that. And thanks for coming by the podcast and making time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks. So moving on to our second topic, insurers and, and how they are performing. It's just me and Paul, who thinks so highly of me, his <laughs> moron friend. Back in fall 2017, the Trump administration canceled billions of dollars in Obamacare payments to insurers. Now, the mechanics are a little wonky, but at the time, the White House said those payments were illegally appropriated. But Democrats pointed to that move, Trump's cancellation of of the payments, and said, this is a prime case of Affordable Care Act sabotage. The decision launched a wave of lawsuits. Stories fallen out of the news, but, but Paul, you've been tracking it closely. What have been the latest developments in this legal case? Yeah, we now have at least a dozen different lawsuits that have been filed over these cost-sharing reduction payments. And uh, one of them is a class action suit that now has 91 different insurers on it. And we've had three, we've had rulings from three different federal judges, all of whom involving, I think, six cases, including the class class action case, um, all of whom have, have sided with insurers in saying that, yes, this is an obligation of the federal government under the Affordable Care Act, and the feds need to to make good on these payments. Um, now, there's a question about um, the extent of that obligation. So insurers were left high and dry in 20, 2017. So for the final three months, these payments were cut off. They had no ability to take steps to mitigate that loss, and they just took a hit. So the judges, uh, you know, it's very clear that judges are saying, yes, for 2017, what, what insurers lost, the federal government's going to need to make good on that. The question is, what happens beyond 2017, because steps by insurers and by state regulators have essentially um, made it so that insurers uh, aren't taking a huge financial hit um, under even though these payments went away. Um, So the question is, are they still entitled to these payments despite the fact that they've taken steps by – to to address the the financial harm. And those steps might be insurers, for instance, raised prices on some of their plans. And in this complicated financial maneuvering, most Americans who were shopping for plans were protected because as the prices went up, the, the support that they were getting to buy those plans went up in turn. That didn't help people who were uh, shopping off the exchange. There's still millions of people who really felt those price increases. But for a lot of people, those price increases were essentially fictitious. And But it was a way for insurers to kind of guard themselves. And then some state regulators supported a practice that our wonky listeners will know called silver loading, um, which involved kind of steering uh, these, these higher price plans, making them more mainstream in the exchanges. 
That's exactly right. And and the one judge who ruled last week, um, Judge Margaret Sweeney, and she's handling that that class action case that I mentioned, actually ruled that 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 it doesn't matter that um, that there have been steps to mitigate that financial harm, that the federal government is still on the hook for making those payments. And that is a big deal if that's where the courts ultimately end up because it comes to about $12 billion per year. But there's a real question about like what would happen because insurers, um, you know, they have to they have to spend 80% of premium dollars on medical care under the Affordable Care Act. And if they get essentially, if they jack up premiums to compensate for the loss of these payments, and then they get these payments, then they're going to have probably too much money. So do they end up having to refund that to their customers? It could be a giant mess. I, I see this story as one that hits on a lot of buttons for people that aren't necessarily exciting and sexy topics. It's insurance companies, which the general American public doesn't have a lot of sympathy for. It's litigation, financial workings of the Affordable Care Act. This is not necessarily screaming uh, in, in a way that, say, the Medicaid expansion topic might. But but it seems to me, Paul, that it gets at something pretty important, which is how is the Trump administration overseeing the Affordable Care Act? And is it making decisions that ultimately benefit Americans or are these decisions driven by politics? Well, I mean, I would turn it back on Congress, though, too. I mean, the Trump administration's stance is that these that these this program was being illegally funded because there was no appropriation and that the appropriate way to address this is for Congress to appropriate the money. So Congress can deal with this issue. They can appropriate the money, but they have not done that. There was legislation, as you and the listeners probably remember, that uh, Lamar Alexander and Patty Murray worked on and seemed to have bipartisan agreement on that would have reinstated the CSR funding, and that fell apart. And now there doesn't seem to be a lot of... uh, a lot of talk or enthusiasm for reinstating these payments. So it's not just the Trump administration here. It's it's Congress very much um, is part of this uh, part of this situation. Those bipartisan efforts to stabilize the ACA got blown up in part because of conservative Republicans using the abortion issue uh, as as something they said they couldn't support that the funding would end up helping fund abortions, and they said that was not a place that they were willing to go. Earnings reports are coming out now about 2018 financial performance. And after all the storm on drawing about insurance companies, do we have a sense for how they are doing both broadly and then with respect to the ACA? Well, I mean, insurance companies are doing very well, I think is the bottom line. We've had sort of fourth quarter financial uh, earnings calls. Um, and. But what we're waiting for now, at least what I'm waiting for, is on March 1st, they have to file their uh, end-of-year financial filings with the National Association of Insurance Commissioners. And what that will break down is basically how they did on their individual market business, which is really what we talk about when we talk about the Obamacare markets. And, you know, by all measures since over the last two years – insurers are doing very, very well. Um, You know, I was on a call with Molina, um, one of the biggest players in the ACA markets um, at the end of the third quarter, and they were talking about having margins in the neighborhood of 10% on their uh, individual market business, which um, is kind of incredible. Um, So Why why is it incredible? Because there had been doomsaying for years about the individual market and how these insurers were losing money? 
Yeah, and, and because yes, you know, in the first three years, insurers lost a lot, billions of dollars. Um, you know, lots of them pulled out, particularly national insurers like United and Aetna and and others pulled out of the markets. And you know, these were seen as as uh, very troubled. And so to have a company uh, not only making money. But uh, expanding their footprint and and being very bullish uh, in talking with investors about the prospects for this market is a stark turnaround. You mentioned the ten percent profit margin that Molina enjoyed, and other insurance companies are are doing well. That that leads into maybe my last big question here, which is around what Democrats are pushing, Democratic candidates specifically are pushing as coverage expansion proposals like Medicare for all. And some of those proposals take direct aim at insurance companies. Senator Kamala Harris said uh, in a CNN town hall that she was for abolishing private insurance before her, her staff walked that back. How much of the resistance that we are seeing emerge around Medicare for all is, is motivated by insurance companies who are worried about proposals like Kamala Harris's that could eliminate what they do? Yeah. I mean, I think you make a good point that insurance companies are a popular um, enemy. It's uh, people like to uh, people don't like insurance companies because they're the ones who often turn down their medical claims and stiff and them and they end up with big bills. Um, but I think what you're seeing is a, a very vigorous effort um, to try to stop this in its tracks right from the in inception. Um, but I think what you're seeing from the insurance industry is they don't want to be alone. Um, they don't want this to be an insurance industry effort. They want it to be a, a, a united front among the entire healthcare industry. They want to be with pharma. They want to be with hospitals. They want to be with doctors. And they want all of this, all of these industry groups, uh, you know, saying that this is a this is is not the path we want to go down, and that uh, Americans don't want you know uh, socialized medicine or whatever term you want to use for it. And, and I know you know this because both of us sat with a coalition of hospitals and insurers and, and others who wanted to make the case collectively that, look, the healthcare system in the United States isn't perfect, but it is better than whatever disruptive change may be coming if the Democrats get their way. Yeah. And they, you know, what we kept hearing from them is we want to focus on the problems with the system that we have and address those and talked about things like surprise bills, surprise medical bills. So I guess the, the challenge, I would, what I would like to see with them, if they really want to address those questions, what is the unified uh, approach to dealing with surprise medical bills that insurers, pharma, hospitals, and docs can all get behind? Um, be interesting to see if they could uh, come up with that. I'm also curious if we end up seeing some sort of coverage expansion in the next couple of years. I, I'm, I'm putting this down, a marker down in February 2019. If there is some more limited coverage expansion, Will that end up benefiting insurance companies? Much like to your earlier point, some insurance companies have figured out how to be profitable, very profitable from the Affordable Care Act. So if we see more coverage expansion that isn't the dramatic single-payer option that, that some very liberal people want, will the current system, will those insurance companies that are already on top only strengthen their hand? Yeah, and, and I, I, would, I would make a related point about Medicare. 
Um, you know, Medicare Advantage is is booming. There are now, I think, 22 million, uh, you know, Americans who are in private Medicare plans, about 35% of the entire Medicare population. And insurers love this market. They're doing well in it. It's stable. It's growing. They're making money. The Obama administration loves Medicare Advantage. They're doing everything in uh, their power to uh, facilitate this market and to help it. Um, so the 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 bigger and more robust that market becomes, the harder it's going to be to sort of dismantle that and get rid of uh, the private Medicare system. Paul, thank you for running us through that. For our last segment today, we're going to focus on the drug price hearing looming in the Senate Finance Committee next week. And we're welcoming back Rodney Whitlock, Vice President with McDermott Plus Consulting and a repeat guest on the podcast. Hello, Rodney. Thank you for having me. I look forward to getting my card stamped. Full disclosure, you used to work for Grassley, and you're now in the private sector. Are any of your clients testifying at his hearing next week? I worked for Grassley for 11 years, and I do not have any clients testifying next week. But because you worked for Grassley for 11 years, that is exactly one reason why we wanted to have you today. Next week's hearing is going to feature testimony from some of the leading drug company executives in the world, the head of Merck. Johnson & Johnson will be there. Pfizer will be there and so on and so on. When you are looking at that hearing, which many in Washington have circled as this is a moment where drunk companies could be held accountable, could be asked very direct questions. Do you see this as a hearing where there's going to be any news coming out of it? Or is it just going to be drug companies fending off congressional inquiry? So as a staffer, I can say this is going to be a very difficult hearing where you have seven witnesses on this panel, and if you want to work for your member to help them come up with a question, the, the gotcha question, the really to put somebody on the spot, remember, you have to set it up, you have to walk through it to make your point, and if you've taken 90 seconds and all seven of them take 30 to respond, you've used your five minutes. This is actually a very difficult hearing for members to be able to really you know, score gotcha moments with the drug companies. This is very challenging. So how would you advise a member to score that gotcha moment? To do something that runs counter to who they are. With these hearings, you almost have to be willing to be rude. You have to say, I'm focusing on this drug company because of what they've done, and be willing to tell anybody else who jumps in, I'm not talking to you, I'm only talking to this witness. If you really want to focus on one company and something of behavior that you think you want to draw out, that's how you have to be willing to do that. Believe it or not, senators and members of the House, that's not naturally how they run is to, to want to be rude to people in these types of settings. They you worry about think, how it looks like. You don't think Senator Rod Wyden would be direct and, and provocative? I think he could, but I think it from a staffing perspective, you have to really ramp your member up to be able to do that because that's what you're, you know, that's what you're expecting in these situations. What would be a good gotcha question for a drug company executive next week? Oh, I think that one of the places it will be um, – Interesting to see if members will go there, will speak to the specific drugs and the specific you know, price hikes and ask them to justify them. Uh, what is your um, – and particularly putting them in a situation where they're on record, why is it a you – know, the price of a drug has increased by X over time? Um, and particularly when the drug itself hasn't changed. Because that's, I think, something that matters a lot to consumers, which is that they see prices going up, but they don't see a change in the nature of the product. Anything else you have, cars, shoes, you know, you know, everything changes 
they improve somehow. Even this new iPhone 10 or I think Samsung's gone to a, a G, uh, S10, there's supposed to be an expectation things have improved in some way. The drug didn't get better. It just got more expensive. And let's see if the members put them on the spot to, to justify why prices go up. Yeah, I also think there's like a challenge. You often see members give speeches when they get their five minutes and they blow a huge amount of time of that and, and leave very little time for the uh, testifiers to have to answer the questions. And it's easy for them to squirm out of it. Um, Paul, that's, what's interesting is that this will be the finance committee. I'd be much more concerned about if it were the help committee where, what is it, seven of them are running for president? So you know, finance might not be as, as uh, encouraged to do speeches instead of actually engaging with witnesses. One, one question I have, Rodney, is on this bipartisan interest in doing something on drug pricing. There was a hearing in the House a few weeks ago, seen as a bit of a warm-up for next week's hearing. But Democrats and Republicans have different ideas about what they want to see from drug companies and, and from potential legislation here. Where do you think Grassley wants to go with legislation? What are the measures that he particularly likes? I think that if you watch some of the things he said previously, the CREATES Act, which deals with abuses of the RIM system, I think pay for delay. And, and not all of our listeners will know CREATES Act and, and the RIM system. So this is the generic. Yeah. So the CREATES Act is an area where Grassley has spoken. It deals with the ability of generics to, to be able to compete with branded drugs and the roadblocks that are put in front of them and a reform to that process. Pay for delay, another way that branded drugs try to keep generics competition off the market. And Grassley's been pretty strong there. I think you saw him on direct-to-consumer advertising having a um, pretty strong feelings about that. But I think most importantly for Grassley, it will be what is the realm of the possible. Grassley's not in this to make statements. He's in this to make legislation. So if he's in it for the art of the possible and to make legislation, where where is that effort really going to begin? Is this going to be House Democrats are pursuing one proposal, Grassley is running the effort in the Senate, and eventually we might see a compromise? Or is Grassley really setting the tone and others are looking to him for where this will go? I think Grassley has a, a very fascinating dance he's playing, where I think he has a relationship with Senator Wyden where the two of them can work together. And I certainly uh, worked with Senator Wyden's office when I was there on the inve investigation of uh, Gilead and Savaldi. So there's history there. And Senator Grassley was on this podcast about a month ago, and, and I asked him about his relationship with Senator Wyden, the ranking Democrat, the top Democrat. And he, he made a similar point that, that this might not be the famous relationship that Grassley had with Max Baucus 10 years ago as the two of them did all this legislation together and almost did the Affordable Care Act together, but that, that there's enough of a building ground for more to come. So the two of them work together, and then they try to bring in the folks on the committee who want to be part of something. Now, let's be clear. There are going to be some to one side who are going to say, I don't want to do anything in this subject, and those who are going to be, if you're not doing what I want, this is not good enough for me. And so what they have to do is start with themselves and then branch out to the realm of the possible in the committee. And if the finance committee can lead, and certainly I saw this there in the 2000s and you saw a good chunk of it even during uh, the last decade, where the finance committee can lead, they can certainly cause others in Congress to have to follow because of the rules of the Senate and the ability to use the filibuster to say, the House has gone too far, we won't go as far as the House is going. So that's where the key to action is. 
How do you think about the politics of this issue? I mean, President Trump has clearly made this a, a huge piece of his agenda. Speaker Pelosi came in saying this was pretty much her number one health care agenda item. That would suggest that there's an opportunity here for, for bipartisanship, but we're also in you know, a pretty poisonous political atmosphere. How do you, how do you calculate that? You're looking for the Venn diagram of the possible between the president and the speaker, um, throw in Mitch McConnell, but that's where the role that Grassley and Wyden can play is so important because they can ultimately define the realm of the possible and put the speaker, put the president in the position of saying, this is what can be done. If you can't live with this, nothing's getting done. February 2019, we're recording this podcast. If you had to bet... What are the odds that Grassley and, and team will be able to get drug pricing legislation out of Congress? I would bet on them being able to do it, but I do not define it as expansively as maybe others do. I think there are some things they can agree upon. Others will look at that and say that's not enough. And so it depends on how you want to define it. I certainly think there is a set of things that they can work on. I think if you looked at the hearing that they've already done, looking at the Part B, as in boy drugs, that those – there is certainly a consensus that we know we have problems there. Um, I think there's opportunity to look at Part D drugs and the Part D benefit and you know, reconsider some things there. There's a, there's a universe, but it's not going to be as sexy as some people look at who only want – negotiation. And if you're not doing negotiation, you're failing. I don't think that's in the realm of the possible. So like an 80% chance that a limited package of drug pricing reforms moves out of this Congress, but very low chance that the Bernie Sanders favored ideas will will make it through. And I think that Senator Sanders should push his on the campaign trail rather than in Congress because I, I would keep my expectations low for that. One hurdle to getting any legislation out of Congress that affects health care is all the moneyed interests in healthcare that care about how reimbursement is currently structured and will these plans ding them. But does that also offer possibility, Rodney, for lawmakers who are seeking ways to, say, raise revenue by finding opportunities to cut spending uh, that the government might be making on Medicare drugs? Certainly. The CREATES Act and Pay for Delay have been on the table in a number of conversations in the last 18 months as a possible pay for. That will certainly be the case in 2019 as we have other provisions in other legislative areas where we'll be looking for ways to pay for things. And absolutely, that makes those types of legislation where you, they save money, it makes them very plausible. This drug price hearing is not the only one on the calendar for healthcare in Congress in the next number of days and weeks. There are several hearings on HHS and how it was involved in, in taking care of refugee children who were separated at the border. I know I'll be attending those hearings. There are hearings looming on measles and the vaccine rates and whether anti-vaccination efforts have contributed, as, as well as other uh, initiatives that lawmakers have announced. Are there hearings on your calendar, Rodney, that you have starred as must-watch uh, must beyond this drug pricing one next week? The finance series of hearings are what I star because that will show direction in where 
Grassley and Wyden are agreeing or areas to educate their members and where they're trying to show direction, I think those are the ones that should be the ones that give you an indication of what is the realm of the, the possible. The House has this nasty tendency of being just uh, very difficult with each other, conflicting uh, when in areas that are, again, very politically difficult. Um, the House can work together on things when they're not politically difficult, but this area is not one of those. And so that's where if you're watching for anything, it's, it's grassly and wide. A good recommendation from a former grassly and Senate Finance Committee staffer. I may have experience there and certain a bias. Thank you for joining us on Pulse Check this week. Thank you, friends. A pleasure just to be here with you. That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Paul Demko, Rachna Pradhan, and special guest Rodney Whitlock for joining the podcast, and Dave Shaw for producing the show. If you like Politico Pulse Check, you can help us rate or review the show by searching on your favorite podcast app. If you have suggestions, you can reach me at ddiamond at politico.com by email. And you'll find a new episode of Politico Pulse Check in your podcast player next week. <laughs>